Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Gemma Charles, Campaign's Deputy Editor. Today we're going to discuss the online safety bill and have a chat with some senior industry leaders about a Booper campaign that reduced its carbon footprint by 95%. And a bit later on we'll be talking about the rebirth of the jingle. I'm joined by our media editor, Arvind Hickman. Hi there, Arvind. Hey, Gemma. How are you going? <laughs> Not too bad. So um, this week, Campaign has been canvassing senior industry people about whether the threat of jail is the best way to get tech companies to protect children. So the background to this story is, is that the online safety bill, which has been going through Parliament for a while, is now going to be amended to say that managers at tech companies who fail to take proportionate measures to stop children from seeing harmful content can face jail sentences. This comes after a backbench revolt by Tory MPs. Previously, the bill had just mooted fines and there was a much narrower scope in terms of when criminal liability kicked in. Now, it's important to um, provide a bit of context here about the online safety bill and why regulators are seeking to do this. Uh, A lot of you may recall, tragically, in 2017, the teenager Molly Russell ended her life um, after viewing um, online videos on social media platforms um, about suicide and self-harm. Now, recently, a coroner, Andrew Walker, issued six recommendations, including separating platforms for adults and children and reviewing algorithms used by sites. Molly's father, Ian, um, has urged social media firms not to drag their feet. And I guess what the government is trying to do here is to find the most effective way to encourage social media platforms to make these safe spaces for children. So let's turn to what people have been saying. Um, Phil Smith, who's the director general at his bar, reckons that, and I qu- I'm quoting him now, fines of up to 10% of global turnover represent a compelling incentive when compared to a low likelihood of imprisonment for local executives who fail to comply with regulator demands. But then we've also got Paul Bainsfair from the IPA who said, whether this is the best way to get tech companies to remove anything that might harm children is impossible to answer. It's certainly attention-grabbing. The threat will focus minds and large tech companies are purportedly watching the bill closely and it's not an empty threat. So two senior leaders may be taking slightly different um, views on this, which is interesting. Yeah, I I think this this whole issue has divided the industry and opinion. Uh, It's important to note that we did ask the IAB, which is the body that represents social media platforms, um, if they'd like to contribute a view, but they declined on this occasion. Uh, So what I did actually is I spoke to a couple of um, senior Uh, contacts within social media firms to get their unvarnished views about this and whether it's workable. I suspect to a media agency leader about whether that person thought um, this was the right approach. Uh, These are views that I've sort of gotten anonymously because it's a very sensitive issue and you won't get social media folks or media agency people speaking on record. So they've decided to speak on the condition of anonymity. Gemma, the first comment is from a senior media agency executive, someone very well respected in the industry, who basically warns against introducing regulations that aren't realistic and may have unintended consequences. This feels like politicians think these tech platforms aren't listening, so let's raise the stakes and threaten them with prison. My problem with this sensationalist approach is that it comes across as sticking heads on a spike to make a political point. But is it really going to be effective? What is the right level of punitive punishment? And are we really targeting the right people? 
As a media agency leader, the safety of children using platforms and brands that run campaigns on these platforms is paramount. But is throwing a Meta or Google or Twitter country manager in jail solving a problem that has been designed and controlled from California? Gemma, this source is very well aware of the real problem here and you know, online harm and how it impacts children. Um, but it's more a matter of whether this proposal is proportionate and, more importantly, whether it's effective or enforceable. So I also talked with two senior social media executives um, in this market who understand the mechanics of how these companies work and whether these laws would be effective or enforceable. Uh, yet again, you know, these sources have spoken to me uh, anonymously, but very candidly and without going through official comms, which, as you'll appreciate, uh, might, might have given us a very different response. Indeed, indeed. So my first source said this concept of placing liability in senior executives, you know, it's been spoken about for a while and that there are other industries where strong punitive action is taken, uh, for example, in financial services. Believe it or not, even in journalism, we have some rules in terms of what we can or can't say or write. Um, and sometimes, you know, even if they are flouted, quite often, if we write the wrong thing or something that's defamatory, we'll end up in court. Anyway, have a listen to this. This is a difficult one. I think it makes a good headline and it's an understandable way of looking at it. But will it work? And who is ultimately responsible? Is it a UK executive or someone in Ireland or someone in the US? Even some of the directors of UK businesses are based elsewhere. The law needs more clarity on who it would apply to and how it would work across different jurisdictions. And I spoke to another social media insider from a different platform who told Campaign. The people who head up the country can represent the UK. What they can't do is change a policy to localise it or tweak a product by themselves. The US are the ones making the product, writing policies and adapting. Would it not be more powerful if you contravene the laws, then your whole platform will be shut down in a territory rather than punishing individuals that may not be able to do much about an issue? So, Gemma, there you have it. Three different um, industry leaders, insiders. What are your thoughts about this issue? Yeah, well, there have been some heartbreaking stories um, which have shown up the shortcomings in social media companies in terms of how they protect vulnerable children. So it's it's always worth remembering that when, you know, you do see campaigners or MPs, for that matter, calling for tough sanctions. I mean, this is, this is some of this is really coming from the heart, but... Um, and, you know, I mean, finding these companies can often be like a drop in the ocean. So, you know, talk of jail will focus minds, I'm sure, and make sure that online safety is prioritised. But um, the people you spoke to, Arvid, they, it does it does actually show that there is an issue with who actually should be in jail, whether you would get those that are actually culpable um, being the ones uh, in the clink. It's one of those, it's one of those stories that's got... Um, you know, you look at the headline and go, well, of course, like, if people are not taking this seriously, they should be in jail. But then it's interesting to uh, dig a bit deeper as well. I think what this highlights is that it's extremely difficult to regulate platforms by individual markets, just like it can be really challenging to get multinationals to pay tax in an individual market. Uh, there's no doubt that more needs to be done by regulators and platforms. And I would argue platforms could probably be more proactive in this space. But I think it's a really important issue for the government to get a grip on. What we do not want to see are more tragic deaths like that of 14-year-old Molly Russell. The question is, what is the most effective way to tackle it? Earlier this month, 2022 was 
unsurprisingly confirmed as the UK's hottest year. Uh, The climate emergency was brought into sharp focus when we hit 40 degrees in July, wasn't it? And, you know, brands and agencies and the whole of the Adland ecosystem have been sort of trying to respond to this over the last few years. And we have seen sort of positive initiatives such as AdNet Zero um, that sprung up that seek to sort of drive an industry-wide reaction. But today we're going to kind of find out about two different projects from Adlanders in the carbon cutting space. First up, we'll chat to Zoe Vafadari, the Chief Brand and Corporate Affairs Officer at Healthcare Specialist Bupa and the Chief Executive of Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO, Sam Hawkey. Then we're going to link up with Amy Williams, the Founder and Chief Executive of Goodloop. So first, let's go to the Bupa work. So Bupa's launched its sustainability strategy last year And to mark this, it released a global campaign, Healthy People, Healthy Planet, created by AMV. And the film was shot using sustainable virtual production methods that Bupa says meant it used 95% less carbon than filming on location. It's a nice film. It shows health professionals appearing to travel across the globe, performing medical examinations that would otherwise be done on people on the the actual planet. So um, let's hear a clip of the film. We've taken on the planet as our newest patient. Treating it with the same care and compassion we treat you with. Because if the planet lives a healthy life, we all can too. Welcome, Zoe and Sam. Great to have you here. So, Zoe, let me come to you first. Um, in terms of Bupa's sustainability strategy, what are some of the sort of standout plans for you? And then just tell us why you took the decision to make a film to promote this. Hi, Gemma. Thanks for having me. Um, so I suppose regarding our, our strategy, you know, we've been looking after people's health for 75 years um, and it's becoming increasingly clear that in order to keep doing that we really need to look after the health of our planet too uh, because the two are interlinked and you know having a healthy planet is really important for us to stay healthy. Um, We needed to create a bit of a a memorable and quite succinct way to explain that really initially to our people. um, We've got 85,000 colleagues around the world so we needed them to really understand what our intentions were and also for then um, you know our customers to understand that too. Um, and that's really who the film was was aimed at in, initially, uh, customers and colleagues, um, to start to show them our commitment um, to taking on the planet as a patient and um, and to do a bit more to take care of it. In terms of the standout plans and what we've got kind of coming up, you know, we are really at the beginning of this. We launched our strategy at the end of last year, um, but there is a lot underway, um, whether that's recognising that delivering healthcare has an environmental impact and doing more to to reduce that there are there's a lot of uh, work underway right across the globe um, and a good example of that would be what we're doing in Australia where we've recently partnered with um, Pacific Hydro to make the switch to 100% clean energy really you know healthcare is a energy consuming sector and so doing as much as we can to be responsible with that it's it's paramount but then there's there's some other work that we're doing as well working with startups and innovators to try and accelerate change um try and really stimulate the conversation right across what could other healthcare solutions look like so um we're really 
testing and trialing a lot of work in that space. Um, I can give you some examples of that, but that's kind of where the, where it gets really interesting. Um, a good one that we just launched last week in the Cromwell Hospital in London was um, trialing um, an adaptation to uh, anaesthetic gases and um, how we can capture the waste that is produced through that process um, and make sure that it's um, recycled and, um, and dealt with responsibly. And that digitization is, is also um, a really important priority for us as well, because if we can serve our customers in a way that uh, is faster and uh, I guess more frictionless for them, but also helps to minimize the amount of carbon that's taken on in a, in a process, for example, virtual GP appointments rather than having to come to an appointment. Um, we've got um, a system that offers that in Spain and it's just launched in the UK as well. But um, through, I guess, minimizing the amount of travel that's incurred, um, we've been able to save just over 8,000 tonnes of carbon emissions a year in Spain. So lots happening right across the piece from digitisation to innovation and, and to making sure that we're you know, doing the foundations right in terms of our own energy consumption. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's not just something on the surface, it's something that's really ingrained in the organisation. Sam, let me come to you um, and just focus on the, the film if we can. So um, how did um, your agency sort of arrive at this position in of the planet being uh, Booper's newest patient. What's behind that? Uh, firstly, thank, uh, hello, and thanks for having me. Um, I think, um, just to, just quickly on Zoe's point, I think one of the things about Booper is the scale of it and also the amount of things that they're doing. And I think the first part is whether it's actually their kind of, what they would call kind of getting their house in order or some of the bigger initiatives that they're doing. The scale of the task is, one, really quite impressive. And I think that kind of led us to the ability to go slightly more thematic with the message that we're putting out into the world um, and allowed us to do a bit more because, as Zoe talked about, customers and internal is get them really excited about it. Uh, and and that's why we went for something which is a little bit more kind of, I suppose, in, in old money, it's brand work that gets you excited about the theme of what we're doing and is everything that sits underneath. And And when we developing it with the creative guys i think it's when you think about that there are seven million premature deaths every year due to the effects of air pollution you start to go they're the types of things when creative teams and strategists get hold and go bloody hell that is a big number and therefore there is this direct correlation to the way that uh our, the planet and its health affects us and the other great thing about that is when you, we're talking about sustainability one of the hard things is you know what can i do and and you know my small changes how big a difference do they make um, when you link it to people's health, all of a sudden it has that tangible um, piece that makes people really care about it. And I think that's what the campaign is born out of and kind of the strategy going forward is if the planet is healthier, you will be healthier. Um, and that's something you should really care about because it's very kind of personal to you. It's personal to your family, to your community, to your to your, to your jobs and your, the companies that you work in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean that's the, that's you're, you're so right because that's the thing with sustainability, like bring it bringing it actually home to people. Um, Zoe, so let let's get a bit like um, technical. So take us through some of the steps that um, enabled the um, film to be sort of less carbon intensive than a, a normal ad. I guess it, you know, it started with the conversation around recognizing that if we're going to talk about this subject, we need to to produce a film that's in keeping with the messages we're trying to convey. So, you know, that we had to be responsible in terms of that approach. And the team at AMV provided quite a few different options to sort of stimulate that debate. And we were really excited and quite intrigued to find 
out more about the virtual production technique um, and to be able to use a technology that took us to a, sort of all four corners of the earth without leaving the M25. Um, and it was an experiment, you know, it was certainly not a technique that we've used before at, at Bupa. I don't think it's one that you've used that much at, through, through AMV, you know, it was um, really a bit of an experiment for us both. Um, but we wanted to be a bit brave and try something new. And I hope it encourages other brands to do the same. Um, but in terms of um, the technical aspects of it, I mean, it was great to be on set. It was great to see um, how we were trying to overcome some of the challenges with with showing a, a realistic situation from, from a studio, bringing in people and props but um very much using cgi and using um techniques that have previously been using gaming technology um to, to try and bring this to life in a way that felt realistic but uh, sam i don't know if you've got anything to add on the um on, on the technicalities tell us a bit about the challenges as well sam there must must have been a few i think that the challenge is a lot of this is imagine what it's going to look like um, and when you start talking about you know if we take the arctic scene as a example snow blizzards and we kind of say that not outside that we're not outside the M25. That's a very hard thing to get your head around um, uh, as a client when you're sitting kind of in partnership as a process, let alone as creative and, and producers um, in terms of uh, actually knowing how it's going to come out. I think the interesting thing about um, the Unreal Engine is we've also had people go down there and explore what it can do before in terms of the types of things it's very good at, the types of things it's not so good at. Um, and I have to say the guys down there were, were really, really great at adding that kind of texture of props um, alongside the kind of CG. So it's it's a combination of, you know, there's when we think about like ChatGPT and all these technologies, it was very much a combination of the technology and the human side around giving that texture and enabling those things to come together, as well as then taking it into post-production and making sure it all looks, um, it looks brilliant. And I think from a um, results point of view, 95% car less carbon is um, this actually produced 3.97 metric tons of CO2. Um, and the estimation through the AdNet Zero calculator would have been 121 metric tons. So it's a big number that you save because you can imagine if we were flying to the desert and the Arctic, it becomes very um, kind of intensive from that perspective. But I think the challenge is Zoe and the team, they don't quite know what they're going to get. And in truth, when the agency steps into that and we're now much further down the line, thanks to Zoe and the guys, is we know a bit more about what you can get. And the more that people do it, again, it's that positive momentum, right? Now, other agencies, hopefully, and, and we pointed at some examples that others have done, they can point at an example of a, of a shoot that was done completely in a studio and go, that's the type of quality you can get. And it creates that positive momentum. And, you know, we all like other people's case studies to show off what we're trying to do. So I'm, I'm sure that'll, uh, that'll get us around the those sorts of challenges of other people doing it. When you said it, it reduces 95% of carbon emissions, what, what, what does that make up of? Like, is it is the majority of that transport emissions? Or what, how do you sort of look at the whole pie of emissions? And, and when you cut that 95%, um, how do you divvy that up? Yes, the large proportion of the CO2 is, is, from, uh, is from flights. It's also from, you when using the Unreal Engine, the... Uh, the setup in terms of lighting, and it was also calculated from the amount, you know, getting to and from the shoots, it reduces all of those things. So when you're using those technologies, the types of renewable energies that they're using to actually light and and put the energy into the shoot is also a big part of that. But I think the the main driver is um, not flying around the world, not putting lots of teams on on planes, which by the way, isn't always possible, but it, it, um, it is in this 
scenario. Okay. And what's next for the campaign? Have you got a, another iteration of it or what, what's next? Yeah. So we are, um, you know, as I said, we're, we're going to be making sure that it gets um, further reach and visibility through social channels and our own channels. Um, but we're also continuing to work um, to tell our story. There's some YouTube sort of docu-series that we're, um, we're producing as well that go into a little bit more detail around what we're doing in our various um, market units around the world um, to really start to give that next level of detail to those that want it. You know, w- what are we working on? What are the innovations? And, you know, what is healthcare doing to change? Um, and, and in that spirit, we'll also be um, hosting an event in the summer here in London um, to try and bring together the various startups that we started working with right across the healthcare space um, to, to, to make sure that we're sharing ideas there and working on um, what, what more can we do to learn from each other. I think the whole point of this is making sure we are learning from each other and trying to change the healthcare sector, not just um, not just for the benefit of Booper. Absolutely love, I absolutely love the positioning of it and, and how you're connecting health um, to sustainability and and to climate change and and, and how those things link together. Um, Sam, I wanted to ask you, you've worked on quite a number of these sort of campaigns before, including this one, and, and also um, you did Hope Hope Reef for Sheba, which was which won several awards at Cannes. Um, I know that quite a number of clients are a little bit reluctant when it comes to doing these sorts of campaigns for fear of greenwashing. How do you avoid that? How do you get the balance right? I think ultimately it goes back to some of the things we talked about at the start, which is how deep do the things that you're doing go into the business? And that's why when I first sat down with Zoe and she started telling me about all of the things they're doing. So from the initiatives around celebrating those doing really innovative things in this space down to actually the digital products they're making that are going to get used every day that are going to bring down um, carbon emissions, you go, okay, that feels like a business that has got or is tr- or is trying to and starting to do all of those things, and there's a there's a genuine commitment to it. And what that enables you to do is go bigger with the messages and the activation that you do around it. And that's certainly the case from a from a Sheba point of view. Is moving to a hundred percent sustainably sourced fish allows you to go right now. We're really really going to make a statement and building a reef off the coast of Indonesia that spells the words hope is about as big as you can go with that. And I think ultimately. When it's on these types of things at AMV, we believe that our work can genuinely change the world. It can change the way that a company is seen internally or with its customers or to new customers. And I think our advice is always, and one of the reasons we developed a, a new proposition here called AMV Green, where we partner with specialists around all of the different areas of, of, of unpicking this, things like the supply chain, and going, if you need to go through a number of stages before you can step out and go and communicate. And we've had conversations with clients where we're going, you know, you shouldn't be communicating this yet. We need to go back a number of steps. Thanks, Zoe and Sam. Um, Amy, so we're going to find out a bit more about what's going on on the digital side of things with you. Um, let me just give you a proper intro. So um, you're on Good Loop, which is a purpose-led ad platform that helps brands do good at scale. Um, I think you've raised um, £5 million for good causes, something like that. £7 million. So, um, Oh, it's seven million now. Oh, right. <laughs> you need to update. You need to update some of your briefing material. <laughs> it just goes up too quick. <laughs> but um, so you've also sort of launched um, green media technology, which gives ad- advertisers the tools they need to reduce the carbon footprint of their digital advertising, which I I, I find it sort of fascinating, mm. really. And um, one of these uh, solutions is called your 
green ad tag, which is a sort of tracking pixel. But I will get you to, I, I'm not, I'm not good on the technical <laughs> stuff. So I'm going to get you to explain that. But, um, so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Um, you're dialing in from New York as well, aren't you? Because I, I think that, that Good Loop, um, originally, originally based, you're, you're, you're expanding into New York. Yeah. Aren't you, so as we're, well? we're a Scottish business. We have a headquarters in Edinburgh. We have an office in London. We operate globally, but I moved here last Friday um, to to launch our US office. So we have two employees and a very very tiny office in Manhattan. But it's really exciting to be to be expanding to the states. Yeah, yeah, and um, it 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 does show that there's a, a real kind of hunger for what you're you're offering. Yeah. So um, so just turning to you've got quite a sort of scary stat in a survey that you you put out recently, and it says that. A typical online ad campaign produces 5.4 tonnes of CO2. And to, to put that into sort of context, that's almost half of what a person in the U- UK produces every year. Um, I mean, can you sort of explain why these campaigns are so carbon intensive? Yeah, I can. And, and, and I'll start by sort of agreeing. Like I had really no idea that this was a problem either I certainly find this stat surprising the way that we came across it is that Goodloop has been for the last six years since I started the company Goodloop has been running ad campaigns that do good right we we connect big global brands with amazing causes and we distribute their ads programmatically unlocking donations to to to, to fund good so we, we were fundamentally a digital media company and underpinning that we always wanted the media we bought to be carbon neutral which six years ago was a finger in the air throw some money at some trees don't worry about it. And then increasingly, it's become more sophisticated as we've learned more, as the industry has progressed. About three years ago, we started implementing a robust methodology, looking at the data transfer that occurs between an ad server all the way through to an end user's device. And it was something we did internally. We didn't really talk about it much, but it was just something that you know contributed to our B Corp certification. And then about two years ago, um, our clients started sort of pausing on that slide of the sales pitch and saying, well, hang on a minute. How, how, how is it carbon neutral? How do you do that? So, um, so what we really just as a PR stunt, honestly, we, we open sourced our methodology. We put it as a calculator on our website and overnight that site became the most visited page of our website. Like it was the industry telling us something. And, and, um, and I, and I think we opened Pandora's box because the, the reality is that we've built this programmatic system that makes it extremely efficient in one way to, to distribute ads, right? Every time you see an ad on a web page, hundreds, if not thousands of advertisers might have bid for that spot. Each of them, you know, might have their own uh, DSP. They're using certain data exchanges. They're, they be, they're layering in viewability tags and tracking tags. On the publisher side, on average, a publisher has the has 25 SSPs and they also might have header bidders, which mean multiple bids are going to be happening at the same time. And if you think each individual bid requires computational power, it requires energy to transact that bid. For the one impression that wins and ends up displaying on the page, there are thousands of bids, millions of bids that are failed. And they all have the same, you know, power requirement. So when you add up all of these jumps in the chain, you start to see some really significant, some really significant numbers. 
And, and, and I think it's so ephemeral. You can't touch it. You can't hold it, right? The internet isn't, isn't like paper. When you see loads of paper, you think of the trees cut down. And so when, when the internet came into being, there was this narrative of like, oh, thank God, we're going to save the rainforest. But turns out the internet has a higher carbon footprint than the airline industry. It's very, very carbon intensive. All this to say, you, I think it's really, really wonderful that we're getting, you know, less carbon intensive filming techniques like the Unreal Engine. I think it's really important that brands help shift society towards a net zero lifestyle through, you know, eating less meat and investing in sustainable providers and changing society through through our influence. And I think the third pillar of our industry's responsibility is understanding and mitigating the carbon footprint of the media that we buy. One of the kind of solutions you've got is this green mm. ad tag. Can you explain what, what that does and how it helps? So it's basically like a viewability tag, but for the planet. It sits on any ad campaign. You just append it to your tag, you, you know, you append it to your plan, you pop it on your on your digital asset, it follows your campaign around the internet, it tracks how much data is transferred through the wire. So is it a light little MPU or is it a really heavy, rich media video? And how much of it is streamed versus downloaded? It tracks how many jumps in the chain, how many SSPs, DSPs, exchanges, how many times does it does it get passed along? And it tracks the time of day, the geography and the publisher it lands on so that we can understand the the, the, the electricity grid that's being used. So there's some really interesting nuances there. For example, at peak times, like 8pm, everybody's sat at home, they're watching Strictly, they've got the kettle on, you know, they've got the dinner in the oven. And so all of the energy in the house, every light bulb's on. So then they, the electricity grid has to fire up backup generators, and these are normally fossil fuel powered. So at peak times, our energy grid is much dirtier much more fossil fuel intensive. Whereas at lower times, like 3pm in the UK, for example, it's highly, highly focused on wind power. So by switching assets and making sure that we're not running high resolution, rich media video formats at peak times of day, there are huge savings to be made. And and, and that optimization is, is sort of the key to what we're what we're learning from the from the data we're gathering from the ad tag. I just love how granular you can get with this stuff. Yeah, and and the next step, like when we've got that granularity, obviously it's kind of overwhelming as well. So the next step is the so what, you know, the actual tangible behavior change. So we've got this dashboard, it's real time, which I think is super important because it's really important that when we make a change in a media plan and we buy a bit differently, maybe we change the publisher or we change the asset or we change the time of day, you want that feedback loop. You want to be able to see the impact it has on a mission so that, you know, that's how human beings learn, right, is is, is cause, cause and effect. So um, getting that immediate feedback loop, having that dashboard where you can start playing with different levers. And then, you know, what I would love to do, what we're really looking for this year is for brands to partner with us to start understanding the balance and trade-offs. How does it impact performance? How does it impact cost? You know, we can't sit here right now and say it won't cost more. There's lots of talk in the industry about carbon tax. We don't really have the data yet to know. But I think the first step is understanding the trade-offs and then we can have an honest conversation with brands about, you know, what matters to them and, and what their values are. So just to sum up, in, in terms of what you offer, you basically allow brands and I, I imagine their agency partners to monitor um, the carbon footprint um, in, in, in digital media and 
by doing that, you then allow them or inform them in terms of how they can make their media plans more carbon efficient. Exactly. If you had to score Adland in terms of how its its efforts to reduce its carbon footprint, um, how would you how would you rate it at, at the moment? I so I've been banging this drum for a while, and I have been astounded by the rate of change in the last twelve months. After quite a lot of inaction, and understandably so, right? We're not climate scientists, we're marketers. We're trained to focus on the positives, upsell the benefits, underplay the the places we're not so good or not so strong. Like it, sustainability doesn't play into our strengths much. Um, and you can tell that it's lacked our support, right? We are the architects of desire. Advertising can make anything sexy. And, um, and sustainability has firmly stayed in the unsexy camp for way too long. So, you know, it's great to see our industry leaning in and using our superpowers for good. The, the movements like, um, you know, Gemma mentioned AdNet Zero, that started as a conversation in a pub 18 months ago. And today it's a global initiative with every major agency holding group signed up. That's phenomenal. You know, the, the, the resources of, of Ad Green are changing the way production is made across our industry. The adoption of technologies like Goodloop's Green Ad Tag are becoming universal. I mean, in Australia with Group M, we are the default on all their display and video. So you know, it really gives them a great data, a really rich database, as well as, you know, means that they're leading in the industry on, on, on this. So, yeah, I, I've been absolutely bowled, bowled over by it. The, the one thing I would end on is um, Goodloop conducted some research earlier this year, actually earlier last year, and we found that there's such a desire to do good, right? I mean, nine in 10 marketers in the UK and the US feel that making advertising more responsible is, is a key part of our role in our, our, our industry. But there's a huge education gap. There's a huge gap in terms of training. And I think it's a really intimidating space. You know, the difference between carbon neutral and net zero, whether tree planting is good or bad, what is a carbon offset? Like there's so many stupid questions we're all too embarrassed to ask. So um, Goodloop has just launched a course. We actually had our first session yesterday, um, but it's it's an online course. It's on demand. So any listeners that are listening to this and thinking, um, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more and get a bit more confident in this conversation. It's a free course and it's exactly for that purpose. So that's my final little plug. I just had a quick question, uh, something that actually came up this week, um, and, and it's to do with carbon offsetting, uh, which is something that has uh, you know, has been a bit contentious in the past in terms of applications. Some people have accused companies that that carbon offset to to claim they're carbon neutral as greenwashing. There was a, a bit of research, a nine-month investigation by The Guardian, uh, the German weekly Die Zeit, and Source Material, um, that looked into uh, a company called Vera, which I, they, 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 they um, manage carbon standards and they're the largest um, of their kind in the world. And it basically found that 90% of rainforest carbon offsets by Vera were worthless. And there's this whole mindset, I guess, where you know, companies will do as much as they can to reduce their carbon footprint organically, but what they can't reduce, they will offset. I just want to get your views on that in terms of carbon offsetting. What do you think about it and what the application, um, how it's being perceived and is it something that Adland should do? I understand some media agency groups do recommend it in, in, you know, when they can't reduce their plans any further. I can, I can jump in because it's something we've been... Um working on quite a bit actually it's something we've, we've been thinking about quite a lot so the first thing i say is a 
carbon offset is it's like going to the pub and having 10 pints and then in the morning having a smoothie like you still have damaged your body it doesn't take the damage away it's just an, a separate extra thing that's good so um i think that's a helpful way of starting because i before i started working in this space i had no idea what a carbon offset actually meant so you can be an airline, pump a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere and then separately buy credits for a rainforest in a totally different part of the world and Bob's your uncle. Now, the problem with that is it scapegoats the rainforest and it means that the the airline doesn't have to actually do the hard yards of figuring out, you know, what kinds of different fuel could we use? How could we have more efficient engines? How could we maybe have less routes? Could we encourage people to fly less? Those are difficult conversations. Funding a rainforest is easy. So offsets are a dangerous shortcut, but they are also a fundamental part of how we're going to get to ad net zero. And they are a really important part of this journey. And I think it's really important that we don't let setbacks like this undermine the whole movement because rainforest offsets for are, are a great example where you know, it is quite unreliable. The offset industry is very unregulated. It's very nascent. It's very fragmented. At Goodloop, we work with Gold Standard, which is um, an organization set up seven years ago by the WWF and by Fairtrade. And primarily they focus on renewable energy offsets, which are a little bit more tangible than rainforest. Rainforest, obviously, yeah, there's a there's a really famous example where Coldplay, I think, planted a forest and got loads of credit for for doing this amazing thing, and then the forest burnt down. And when trees burn, they they give off carbon. So I think the forest ended up being the net negative for the planet, which is just horrendous. So I think you know, there are there are there are different kinds of projects. There's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of complexity. And working with trusted partners and being open to change and saying it's not going to be perfect. We've got to learn. We've got to change the vendors. We've got to change the way we're measuring it um but not letting perfection be the enemy of progress would be my key message yeah so i want to bring you in this is, is, is do you think carbon's offsetting is something that adland should embrace or do you think they should tread carefully well i think it, we we love a kind of in our industry that it's uh you can have this or this and i think it's an and not an or to amy's point which is um we should be doing all of the carbon offsetting we can possibly do, but we also need to be looking at partners, supply chain. And that's when you start to get into, for example, what we started this conversation with the, the way that we make our work. And we can probably go further than that in this movement is the types of messages and the things we're convincing people to do in the world. And that's where it gets tougher from a, you know, if you're talking about airlines and what they can do, you know, our effect on consumerism and demand and those things becomes a much more difficult conversation to be having in our industry. Um, but no, I think on the offsetting point, I think it is, uh, like Amy said, it's an important part and therefore it should be part of it. The, the disappointing thing is um, it can, it creates more. We just talked about desire. Everyone's up for it. We talked about education. We talked about the cool stuff that's going on. And it just adds more confusion into the into the mix because you start going, OK, well, if I start talking about carbon offsetting, am I now doing the wrong thing? The answer is no, you're doing one of the right things. But are you doing the other side of it? Um, which is actually going to push us forward quicker and actually makes the carbon offsetting you know, even better. So I think it's um, the worry is it creates a lack of education around or, or clarity around what's going on. Um, 
So no, I think we should be doing both. The ASA actually, um, on your point, Sam, sorry to jump in. I just, on the ASA just did a, they just released a study in October that found that carbon offsetting and and net zero are the two terms that cause least trust amongst consumers. Like to your point on like a lack of clarity, it's the two terms that are most kind of obscure from a consumer perspective right now. No, it's super interesting because I think, and that lack of clarity is probably one of the things we should be attacking as an industry. And you tend to get groups of people who really understand it. And then you get a, uh, another group. There's not, there's not too much in the middle who are, uh, are kind of fairly well-versed, but not as, as kind of as deep in it as maybe someone like Amy's. But um, the answer is both. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about greenwashing at the start. We talked about, we were talking about what Bupa were doing, for example, is you, that's one of the ways you can sort of cut the wheat from the chaff, if you like, is what are your plans? Well, if you're just carbon offsetting, that feels that should be a red flag. And if you are, but if you're doing both and you've got serious initiatives around it, and you're looking at how that fundamentally links into your business. You go, okay, well, these guys are talking in the right way. And that's one of the simple ways of looking at, you know, from our point of view, are you ready to communicate? Are you ready to go out to your question earlier of when's the right time? Well, there's a couple of little indicators that say whether you're serious and a couple of indicators that say whether you understand the, the two sides of, of, of what you need to be doing. So from an Adland point of view, we've got to push on both. And the more we're educated on it, the, the better we can uh, talk to our clients. This is a topic that we will definitely always return to, but um, that is all we've got time for today. So um, thanks to Zoe, Sam and Amy for joining us and giving us so many brilliant insights. And now for something completely different. This week, we published a piece by Matthew Charlton, the chief executive of Brothers and Sisters, which ran with the headline, Get the Nation Singing Jingles Again. It pondered why catchy tunes and ads have somewhat gone out of fashion. Brothers and Sisters have skin in the game as they were behind the We Buy Any Car ad with the very catchy rejigged version of Push the Feeling On by MK and the Nightcrawlers. I'm not going to sing it. Here's a clip. Just sold my car to we buy any car. Just sold my car to we buy any car. Just sold my car to we buy any car. Just sold my car to we buy any So Matthew made the point that in the age of TikTok, which leans heavily into music and dancing, advertising is missing an opportunity by not rekindling its love with jingles. He wrote... Creatively as an industry, we've shifted more towards the sophisticated world of movie making and storytelling, when in fact we should be shifted towards getting more creatively involved where people are making culture. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I love a jingle. I always have loved a jingle. But I do remember there being loads more jingles back in the 80s and 90s. Probably showing my age. We show, we're bit. both going to show our age on this. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they went so out of fashion, really. Because I, I would say some of the ads that I remember the most, they might not necessarily have been the most dramatic or beautiful in terms of craft, but they're actually the ones with the most catchy jingles. Sometimes annoyingly so, but you always remember those iconic jingles, don't you? Yeah. Share some of your favourites with us. Well, here we go. Um, I'm from Australia. I grew up in Australia. So my favourite jingles are actually from the land down under. So I have two, actually. Is that cheating? I'll go on then. (laughs) Fine. The first one is from the 80s for the beer brand Victoria Bitter. It was created by the eponymous agency George Patterson, um, which was soon bought, well, which has since been bought, I should say, by Young and Rubicon. George Patterson was a very famous ad executive 
um, a, a while ago, basically. Um, I knew how to sing this jingle before I was even old enough to fetch my dad a can of VB, believe it or not. <laughs> now, I'd love to know how many of our listeners can recognise this rather catchy but blokey tune. It can come at any time. You're taking a bow or feeding a cow. Matter of fact, I got it now. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Victoria Bitter. The next jingle is probably Australia's most iconic. Generations of kids since 1954 will remember the words to Happy Little Vegemite. Um, can I just explain, Vegemite is the yeast spread um, from Australia that is far superior to its cousin, Marmite. <laughs> now, I know, uh, it's a bit contentious. <laughs> you, can, you can send all of your negative feedback back to me. That's right, I can take it. Anyway, this ad was written by Alan Weeks of J.W. Thompson, Sydney, um, and it's been sort of redone over and over and over again. Have a listen to this. Right, Gemma, now you have a favourite jingle. I, what is it? I do, yes. Um, I do like the shake and vac jingle. Uh, that's up there for me. It's all you have to do. Do the shake and vac and put the freshness back. Do the shake and vac and put the freshness back. When your carpet smells fresh, you're under two. Every time you vacuum, remember what to do. Do the shake and vac and put the freshness back. Shake and vac in three fragrances. It first aired, aired in 1980, but I, I think I'm, I think it must have aired for a while because I, I don't know if I would remember it, CD at 1980. But um, I just challenge anyone not to smile after seeing it. And, you know, the the woman is so active, and lively and, and so 80s. I mean, she's wearing heels in the house to do the vacuuming. You know, that raises questions. Why would you do that? But um, I think I actually tried to recreate it as a kid and I begged for beg my mum to like buy shake and vac. Well, that's the whole thing about a jingle, isn't it? They, they can be really effective if done well. Look, we'd, the campaign team would love to hear your thoughts about jingles and also your favourite jingles. So please do get in touch. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at www.campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager Navpal and Editorial Assistant Sean Thorgood and also our producer Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio and also to you for listening I hope you will join us next time On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.